The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. My name is John Zink, and uh, I'm honored today to uh, be joined by uh, an old friend of mine, Mr. Rich Brosey. And uh, Rich is a senior relationship consultant at uh, CAI, which is, uh, stands for Computer Aid Incorporated. Now, uh, Rich lives in Naperville, Illinois. And uh, he was born in Lublin, Poland. Uh, he's got uh, his wife, Aldona, uh, son, Brian, and his daughter, Kimberly. And uh, now, Rich, thanks so much for joining uh, me today here on the True Ambition Podcast. Thanks for having me, John. You bet. So you and I go back a long way. So... Uh, you, you and I, I, I worked for you. Um, well, I worked for someone who worked for you <laughs> years ago at Agilon Consulting. We together. Yeah, we, we all worked together. There's no doubt about it. We were, we were all in the same common cause. Um, but uh, I, I worked for Dave Androsco, and Dave's going to be on the podcast here in a few weeks. Unfortunately, just found out that Dave's uh, dad passed away uh, recently. Oh, gosh. So... Uh, I have to call him, John. Yeah, give him a buzz. Uh, Dave's one of the best, and uh, I was lucky to work for him and uh, work with you, too. So um, that was a fun company to work for, and uh, that was because of the leadership there. And uh, I was lucky to Thank have you. worked for you know guys like yourself. And uh, tell me, how, how long did you work for Agilon, and how, how did you start with Agilon? Just kind of give me a little bit of uh, history there. Well... Uh, to give you some background, Agilon was a company that was owned by uh, Adeco. And Adeco is uh, the largest uh, temporary services company in the world ranked by revenue. And they're basically a combination of a French and a German firm. Um, and they have access to a lot of money. So instead of growing companies organically, they typically have an acquisition strategy where they go to a market and buy into that market. So Agilon was a company that was put together to a number of acquisitions they made right. uh, back in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, uh, probably when you and I were there, they're adding incrementally. So um, I actually came through one of the acquisitions. And I worked for a company uh, very briefly. Uh, it's almost not, you know, relevant to the resume, but I worked for a company that was based in New York, uh, where I was assistant to the COO. And then one day I got a phone call saying, get on the airplane and meet us in Philadelphia. And I was like, why in Philadelphia? They're like, don't ask any questions. Just be there. <laughs> just go. And like a good soldier, I got on the airplane and, and went. And uh, we found out uh, that Agilon acquired us. That's when I, that's when I met Steve Claggett, you remember. Right. And I remember fondly um, and some of the other people that you and I worked with, you know, at Agilon. Dave Andrasco uh, was with another acquisition that uh, was acquired by what turned out to be Agilon. So by the time Agilon was put together, it was about a billion dollar corporation. So I came to an acquisition. You know, once we felt each other out, they gave me additional responsibility. I wound up running a, a big chunk of their business in the Midwest, which included Minneapolis, which, by the way, right. was a very successful operation. One of the more successful operations that I think uh, Agilon had. And as evidenced, as you know, by the trips we've taken and some of the rewards that we've had an opportunity to uh, partake of. So that was a, uh, uh, you know, that was a great acquisition. Now, Agilon um, is no more, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's uh, Modus now, right? 
Well, back in one back in 1999. So again, you know, given a backdrop of the Deco having access to a lot of revenue, a lot of money, a lot of equity money. Right. When things go south, you know, with the companies they acquire for whatever reason, maybe it's mismanagement, maybe it's economic hardship. They typically go out and buy another company, declare victory, and move on. So things weren't going so well with the Deco USA. Things were going well with Agilon. But Agilon was a very small piece. We used to say that uh, at Agilon, we made uh, they made 13 times the revenue. We made seven times their profit. You know, so I mean, it was you know whether that was factual or not. I, I think it was pretty close to the truth. They made a lot of revenue, but very scant amounts of dollars and cents. We made less revenue, but at the same time, they were in charge. They were in control. So they bought a company called the MPS Group which had an IT subsidiary called Modus and Modus came in and took over. So basically when that happened, uh, all the people who were in VP positions, um, and that's essentially what wound up happening to just about everybody there at a VP title. They wound up uh, you know, getting released or getting retired early or getting an early out. And it, it was a happy, Actually, it was a pretty happy time. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was I was lucky. I was out of there before all that crap happened. I know, but it was it was a happy time. Even I think for the most for the most part, people that came out of there were relatively happy. Deco made sure that we were well taken care of on our, on our way out the door. And uh, you know, I think if you look at Modus now, Modus is probably probably at best. Okay, $300, $400 million, which sounds impressive, but think about that. They were a billion-dollar corporation, and then Modus itself was probably a half a billion or more. So you took a billion and a half dollars worth of revenue and shrank it down to about, you know, a third of that, right, at best. And but anyway, so I'm 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 thinking that Agile that Adeco will probably acquire another IT services company if there is such a thing left. And, you know, declare victory and move on. But they've had a lot of reorganizations, as you know. Yeah. A lot of people that you know and I know who are friends of mine, there's very, very few people left who are still there. They've had a lot of reorgs. I mean, they even got rid of Dave, right? Yeah. Well, I know. Mark, Mark Mahachik's still there. Well, he's probably... He's I, going I nuts. That, I can't figure that one out, but... Uh, <laughs> More power to him, you know. Oh, yeah. No, I, I talked to him the other day, and uh, I told him I was gonna be. I told him I was gonna be talking to you, and he said to say hello. Okay, good. No, I, he he uh, he's a great recruiter, and he's in a position where they need him more than they need him more than he needs them. I guess is what yeah. it comes down to. Well, you know, I, a, Agilon was one of those uh, things that it Agilon changed my life. You know, because I was coming out of. 9-11 where the whole industry was crazy and I went into the mortgage business for a little bit and then I went and interviewed with Lisa Lindborg and she hired me and I came in there and then Lisa uh, got demoted or something I can't remember exactly what happened then Dave became my boss and then I went to a training seminar in Florida and met Carissa my now wife and uh, all these things happened. Uh, that was actually a negotiation skills seminar or training seminar in Orlando, Florida, where Carissa was there and I learned how to negotiate. <laughs> yeah, it couldn't have been better training, right? <laughs> yeah, better at the training and you know, the rest is history. I ended up in uh, California and uh, you know, now we got our beautiful little baby Johnny and it, it's all thanks oh, to Ashley. Congratulations. You know, so uh, life is good. I had a question for you. Now, being born in Poland, did you grow up there? How, how long were you in Poland? Well, I came to this country when I was 12 years old. Okay. So, had to be a big transition there. Well, you know, when you're, when you're I guess, I guess the, you know, there's some parts to that which are fortunate. So, when you're younger, you tend to be more like, you know, a little more flexible maybe than if you were older. Right. Uh, so I learned English pretty quickly. Uh, you know, lost my accent pretty quickly. You know, uh, I was in a, a very, very good environment school-wise. So, you know, where did where did your family move to? Uh, Worcester, Massachusetts area, a central okay. Mass. 
So my brother still lives in Auburn, Mass, and my mom is still alive. She'd be 98 this year. Well, next year. Oh, that's awesome. So I think I think she'll make 100. So, but in any case, uh, the adjustment was relatively quick and easy. And, you know, there really hasn't been any, you know, you read about some people adjusting to life in different countries and, you know, uh, and again, you know, the immigrant story here is a very, very good story because, you know, this this country is wide open. So if you're ambitious, if you want to work hard, if you're willing to be educated, if you're willing to take some risks, you know, from a career standpoint to achieve other things, you can do that and you can be rewarded for that. And uh, I certainly took a few risks, you know, not that many, but I took a risk by going to work for uh, Cutler Williams in Dallas, which was a startup company. When I went to work for them, there were less than 30 people. And I was like living in Chicago. I had a good job with a big corporation. Uh, and I would, you know, I went with a startup and, uh, I remember. So wait, did, did you go to Chicago from Massachusetts? Was that the first place well, that you lived? Well, no, I went to college in Worcester. I went to graduate school at University of Maine. Okay. And my first job was in New York city. So I was in New York city. And uh, uh, EDS, which is now part of, you know, several corporations, okay? Uh, and I think I, I, I said in my bio that uh, uh, the majority of what EDS was a very large company, one of the first companies to really uh, do outsourcing, uh, you know, some of the new things that we're doing. Uh, a company run by a guy named Ross Perot, who's, oh, yeah. you know, you know I loved Ross Perot. Ross Perot was a little dude, but he was a guy who was very ambitious and uh, the giant sucking sound. And it was, it was a big. That's exactly it. Yeah, he would have been a good dictator. Okay. <laughs> but he had a kind heart. Uh, and Ross, uh, so EDS transferred me to Chicago. So I, I wound up in Chicago as, as a result of a corporate transfer. So we made a decision that, you know, we were going to go anywhere if it made my, if it made my, if it, if it helped my career. And as a result, we moved from New York to Chicago. And then in Chicago, I joined Cutler Williams. Okay. So I took a, I took a, I took a big risk because people were calling me up saying, you know, did you get your paycheck? And I would say, well, yeah. They said, well, go, this is back in the days where you had paychecks, right? Go cash it right now before they run out of money at the bank. You know, so it was, yeah. it was pretty wild. And, uh, you know, the, the check's always cleared. I've never, I've never had a check bounce from Cutler Williams. But I stayed there for a better part of 20 years and uh, pretty much held a lot of different positions within the company. I was in recruiting. I was in recruiting management. I was in sales. I was in sales management. I was in uh, executive management, field operations. Uh, the company was sold in 1995 to uh, what became uh, Comsys and is now part of uh, Manpower, Experis. All these companies, you know, wind up getting sold or go out of business or get merged into somebody, somebody else. But uh, uh, I was happy enough to participate uh, in, that, in, that, in that blessed time when these companies were actually worth money. Right. And there were money on Wall Street. There were, there were Wall Street people looking for, for uh, you know, for companies to buy and they had money to buy them. So, uh, and a lot of companies that you, you, you may remember, uh, you may remember, John, a lot of these different companies uh, like Computer Horizons and Cyber and Renaissance and some of the other ones, those companies all actually went public. They're all out of business right now. Right. It was a prelude to Y2K and everybody thought, you know, Y2K would provide them with an opportunity to go out and sell more business. Well, that's not what happened. And, you know, there was actually a drop in a business in 2000 because people were disillusioned. They spent all this money and they got scared about the Y2K effects and actually nothing happened. Right. So they were like, well, you know, we've been, you know, we've been gullible. We've been told by these consultants that we're going to have all kinds of, you know, crashes and trains, you know, trains, crashes. Airplanes are going to fall out of the sky. Falling out of the sky. and and, and none of that happened. Right. <laughs> so so there, was a, there was a reaction 
And the reaction was kind of a counter-cyclical reaction to the business. So the business, you know, uh, kind of got hurt. But, um, but uh, you know, that was a, a great event, okay? Because what happened is uh, I participated in, uh, you know, buying and selling of companies. I worked for the acquirer for a couple of years after that. Uh, we went through a couple of, uh, we went through a public offering, a brand new public offering. Uh, I got to participate in that in the show, you know, where you go out and talk to investors about why they should buy your stock. Uh, I was involved in a couple of uh, uh, secondary offerings where they offer additional stock or offer additional debt. Uh, and I worked directly uh, and indirectly at times for uh, the owner of the company, his name was Mike Willis, who is one of these big Texas guys, you know, who would you know, Mike had a Mike had a, Mike had great stories. He was a scratch did he, wear a big, did he wear a big hat? He wore a big hat. He actually <laughs> had, <laughs> and he he had cattle too. He wasn't just a cat. <laughs> just all hat, no cattle. He actually had cattle. Mike is still alive. His name is Mike Willis, and if okay. you Google him, he's he's uh, you know he's had a lot of success in business. He's had a few failures, but overall, he was one of these guys. He. He was like a general. He was a builder. Yeah. If, you, if, you, if you're in business long enough, you don't have some failures, then uh, you're lying. Right. No, he was he, he was one of these guys who he really didn't have the patience to be an operator. He didn't he didn't want to be dealing with people and customers. And, you know, he just wanted to go out and acquire companies and build businesses and tell people how great it was going to be. And I remember going on a road show with him a couple of times and, you know, he's telling these guys. No, we we bought your company because you've got great management and you guys are terrific and we need people like you. And we actually had people from one of the acquisitions show up at a meeting thinking they were taking over the company. You know, because Mike Mike blew all the smoke and they all they all swallowed a hook, line, and sinker, you know. So it was a pretty funny story. But you know, the the, the part about that, the part about that, you know, that was a single time. The single time I think in this business that I that I've seen, uh, and other people have commented on, where there was plenty of financial um, folks pursuing these kinds of companies. All of a sudden, there was interest. Okay, you know, right now it's pretty hard to go public uh, as a services company unless you've got some huge operation offshore. Uh, I noticed one of your speakers is from Rimini Street. That's a company that's been put together again. Yep. You know, I don't know if they're public or private. I think they're private. They're public right? now. They're public now. Public now. But again, yeah. you, you know, the scale is really much bigger than what the companies were able to go public with last time. You know, if you had 70, 80 or $100 million worth of revenue, you could go public. Now it's probably need at least two or three billion, you know. Uh, so anyway, it's a different, it's a different kind of, a, it's a different kind of a business environment. So question for you. Um, I've been in the staffing industry a long time, but then yep. I run into people like you been at for a long, long time. So people always ask me, you know, what, what's, what's changed in the industry over the years? Not, not just what it used to be like for the money and stuff like that. What, what really has changed in the industry that you've seen that's been the biggest game changer? Well, there's, there's a couple of things really. One is that it's gotten, it's gotten bigger. Uh, if you go to any corporation of any size or any company for that matter, of any size, even small companies, every one of these companies is now using outside services. Right. You know, back when I started out with EDS, you had to convince people that it was in their interest to, to use outside services. You know, they don't want outsiders. They wanted their own employees. And, you know, now, using what I would call the variable workforce concept is pretty much ingrained in American companies. They, I mean, every company's budget includes uh, fees for, you know, consulting services, staffing services, professional services. And so the market is huge, uh, probably 10, 15, 20 times bigger than it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. The other thing that's made a big difference the other thing that I've seen different is that there is really a whole lot more competition for the same dollar. Right. And it's not just the, it's not just the little companies. It's not just the people that have, you know, 30, 40, 50 billable people or five or $6 million worth of revenue. 
it's pretty much everybody. Uh, you're competing with, you know, Accenture and you're competing with, with offshore. Uh, you're competing with nearshore companies. You're competing with companies that are virtual. Um, one of my competitors, one of my accounts is a company that's based in the Ukraine. They have no people in this. They have no people in the States. Right. On occasion, they'll have a, a, a person who flies up here and, and meets with them. But their contact is really all virtual, just like you and I are doing. That's how they right. operate. That's how they work. And it seems to work for them. Uh, so I think those are two big differences. The size, the amount of more, the markets exploded. The market's huge. And I'm saying for the future, uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the population trends, okay, the uh, uh, technology trends bode very, very well. Okay, and there's some things happening right now. As you know, there's been a lot of pressure not to bring in H1s. Yeah. So there's much fewer H1 coming, H1 folks coming over to this country. And that's putting an added premium on the people who are already here. And for people that, yeah. don't, for people that don't understand what Rich is talking about, H1B visas are a work visa that uh, uh, people from outside of the... Yeah, people from outside the U.S. get these H-1B visas, and that allows them to come into the U.S. to work, um, not being a green card holder or a U.S. citizen. So I just wanted to clarify that for people that might not yeah, know what an H-1B visa Most of the H-1, uh, most of the H-1s are from India. Right. And the reason why that is is because India has uses English in their education system. So majority of these folks speak passable English. Some of them are excellent in English. But they all speak English. So that's right. different than most of the other countries. Now, other countries are doing the same thing. But uh, so, so what I'm saying is that long term, you're going to need more people. And I think the model is translating more and more into using variable workforces. Companies don't want to have, you know, 300 IT folks. OK, they might want to have 30 or 40. And the rest, the rest is going to be consultants. Right. The other thing is some of the... Uh, you know, some of the tasks are getting commoditized, uh, testing, uh, coding. Um, you know, I mean, you still need business analysts to understand the business and translate the requirements into something that could be uh, automated. But, at, but a lot of those tasks are starting to get very, very repetitive. And, and you know, and, and automation is also a huge changer. We're still in our infancy in automation. I'm not talking about automatic code generators, but I'm talking about automation and testing, automation in, in development, automation in uh, infrastructure, maintenance of your, your system. Uh, people are very, very advanced in some of these things. And I guess, you know, I wouldn't, maybe in 10 years, okay, it'll be again a whole lot different. But Somebody told me that automation is going to replace people. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think you're going to need people and you're going to need people maybe to do different things. But, uh, you know, until, until machines can think logically and clearly and make snap decisions about different things and on, a, on a regular basis, you're going to need people. So I think the future's bright. You know, I mean, if you're, if, if you're in a business right now and whether it's, whether it's staffing, and I know people say, well, staffing has gotten very commoditized. Well, that's true because it's a lot more competition. But on the other hand, you also have a lot more business opportunities. So, Rich, that's a great point. And it brings me up to why I put together this podcast. I'm also writing a book right now, and it's called True Ambition. So I read this quote years ago, about five years ago, that says that true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Now, I've always been ambitious but before I read that quote, I think I was ambitious for the wrong reasons, uh, going after power, money, women, whatever it was back in my younger days. Um, now I think that I'm going after the right things. And what you just said reminded me of why I loved working for you so much and Dave and some of the other people that kind of led me in the right direction in the um, not only business, but in the staffing industry. Because you guys were so positive. And I think that if you just work hard and give people the right things, which is we're doing nothing but solving problems for people in the IT staffing industry. They've got a problem. We as recruiters, as staffing people, as whatever, whatever you want to call us, we're coming in and solving a problem for them. 
If we do that over and over and over again and we just stay positive like you've always been, then we're going to be successful. So what you just said just kind of reminded me of that. So I appreciate you bringing that up. So well what, said, John. What I wanted to talk about is uh, when we went out to have dinner when I was in uh, Minnesota, we'd go out and have appetizers, have a few beers. Everybody always said, are you going to pull a brosy? Because Rich Brosy would order every appetizer on the menu, and it was awesome. And I do that every time I take my team out now. I pull a brosy, and I like, all right, see all those appetizers? I'll take every one of them. I learned that from you, my friend, and it's a great move because everybody's always totally satisfied with every appetizer on there. So I always pull a brosy when I'm taking the team out. Good. <laughs> so, the John, I, I, did, I did that for the same reason that you're doing it, okay? One, it, it gives people a chance to, you know, really kind of sort of loosen up a little bit after work. Yep. It gives people a chance to talk about work in a non-work setting. And it gives everybody a chance to get to know each other. And that's how you build a team. You build a team yeah. by people who are not, who are strangers, who go home to different you know, situations at home who go home to different, you know, different circumstances, but who at the same time have to work as a team. And, yeah. you know, a lot of that is team building. And a lot of people who don't do that, especially in, especially in companies that have as intense, I mean, even though the future is bright, this is still a hard business. It's a oh, yeah. business where you get disappointed, you get customers who don't tell you the truth, you get prospects who don't tell you the truth. You have people who accept an offer and don't show up. You have all of that going on. So you got to have a team spirit and you got to have some level of reinforcement so that when something negative happens to you, you're not the only one it happens to. You know, you have things you can share with people and you can talk with people. And we had a very good camaraderie. And that's the word that's probably more fitting than some of the other words. We had a camaraderie and everybody understood what the job was to get the job done. And if right. something didn't work, then you could always ask your, 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 you could always ask your workmate for help and we would offer help. But it was also a reward. It was a reward for work well done and hard work. If we were failing, I wouldn't have had the latitude to do that. <laughs> well, we must have been doing okay because we always had the latitude we to doing, do whatever we were doing we okay. to do. <laughs> We, we, you know, nobody was, nobody was rejecting those expense reports. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time I, uh, I had a big month or a big year, whatever it was. And, um, you said, have, have John jump on a plane and come to Chicago. And, uh, you and I and Mark went out, I ended up staying at your house. This is a funny story. I'm going to go deep on this one. So I woke up in the middle of the night and uh, I had had way too many drinks and I ended up going and using the bathroom. I got lost in your house in my underwear, and I ended up sleeping on a leather couch, freezing my butt off. And somebody, <laughs> somebody in the middle of the night ended up coming out and putting a blanket over top of me. Thank God. <laughs> but I remember wandering around the house going, I have no idea where I'm going. So I just laid down on a couch and went to sleep. Well, like I said, we had some good times. Oh, uh, we had some great times. Question for you. Are you still running? I remember you running all the time. Well, John, I'm walking. Okay. Okay. okay me but too. I, I try to walk five miles a day. I'm not saying I always succeed, uh, but I do. I walk and run. Uh, about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I had uh, I developed, you know, it was basically I was running. Yeah. You know, I was heavier and I continued running as a consequence. Uh, I developed uh, plantar fasciitis, which is one of those. Uh, so, you know, your feet hurt, you know, it has to do with, so you, you can do either operations or you can do, uh, or you can quit running. So I quit running. So I quit running for about a year or so. By the time that I came back out of that, I was really not in, not in shape to run, but I do walk and walking is just as good. It's, uh, you know, good cardiovascular exercise. It's good for your head. It's oh, yeah. good to get out of the house. You know, we've had a beautiful, uh, beautiful fall here. You know, so uh, you know, I I go like after this, I'll go out and probably go for an hour or two. You know, go for a walk. You know, enjoy the scenery. 
uh, enjoy the the fall weather. Are the are all the are, are all the leaves turning back there right yeah, now? You know, and it's it's a very good therapeutic thing for your head. You know, because you're, because all of us are working from home. You're working from home. Uh, you're on the phone. You're on conference call. You're talking to people, but it's still not the same thing. Right. So it's kind of sort of a, but it also gives you a little more freedom. You know, I get my work done. You know, at three o'clock or three thirty or. But sometimes I'll have a call at six or seven. You know how that is. I mean, oh, yeah. this is a, this is not a business where you work nine to five. You pretty much work all the time. Now you're 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 a you're a Bears fan, so you're much happier this year than I am being a Minnesota Vikings fan. <laughs> Only temporarily. <laughs> you know, the Bears the Bears the Bears can give you a heart attack. I'm glad I have no cardiac issues. <laughs> You know, there was the first game. I turned the TV off. I'm like, they're done. They're cooked. And they won. I was like, whoa. <laughs> well, uh, the game I just watched for the Vikings, all we had to do was kick a field goal. And we won the game, but the coaching staff decided not to kick a field goal. Well, the Vikings are a good team. Yeah, they're, they're a good team, but they're making some piss poor choices this year. Well, did you notice, John, that they're playing a soundtrack, a fan soundtrack? Yeah. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like a stadium full of people. And it's empty. You know, so. So like I said, like I said before, Rich, you were always one of the nicest guys and a huge influence and mentor to me. Well, thank who, you. Who, who are some of the people or persons in your career who were that with inspi- inspirations to you or mentors to you? Well, one of them, you know, uh, Steve Claggett, who was, you know, our boss, he was an executive vice president. Awesome guy. He was the number two guy in the company. And he dealt with us like we were equal, his friends. Uh, but at the same time, we never lost, you know, the respect that we would that this, that this position was due. Mm-hmm. And he believed in <clears throat> rewarding people for doing the right thing. And he believed in holding, in holding you accountable. So he was very good at celebrating success and telling you, you know, how to fix the problem next time. Steve never dealt in blaming you. He was not one of these guys that would, you know, hold a grudge or blame you for something. If you did something wrong, he'd call you in his office and say, or call you on the phone and say, what are we doing to fix it? And I've had a number of examples where I, you know, he just absolutely, he was great. Um, And he sent me to Seattle uh, we were getting thrown off the vendor list over at and which at the time was the biggest customer we had in Seattle. And he sent me there because he, he, he wanted me to see if we could salvage the situation because we couldn't afford to lose a big customer. And uh, I called him and said, we're out. We're not in. Um, you know, somebody else could have said, you know, you know, what happened? Why would you fail? Tell me why you failed. He said, go back to them and give it another try. I said, but they told us to go away. I, he said, get in there and tell them that, you know, you're going to give it another try. So the next day I was in the office. I was in the office around 530 in the, in the afternoon. I picked up the phone, called the head guy in HR at AT&T. He picked up the phone. I had an audience. Next day we were in. <laughs> <laughs> So his only comment was, see, I told you. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, But he was a good mentor. He was a very good mentor and a very good person. And, you know, I've had a couple of other people who I think were very, very good. And uh, actually, there's a guy that I work with here at CAI, whose name is Steve Daly, who worked with us at Agilon, if you remember. Okay, I remember the name. You know, he was in charge of one of the practices. Another great guy, great mentor, very positive guy. Another guy who, instead of dealing with blame, dealt with how do we fix the problem right. and what do we do? And, uh, you know, didn't play favorites, didn't play politics, you know. Uh, and it wasn't just one of these guys who would like, you know, uh, he was accessible. You could talk to him. And, uh, again, uh, you know, some of the things that you talked about, honesty, integrity, all those things were inherent in the way those guys operated. I trusted them. They had your back. One of the imp- one of the imperatives in business is when you work for somebody, you have to be able to trust the fact that they will handle the back end. 
because if they let you flap in the wind or criticize you or, or, you know, say that you're not doing a good job, then you're really not. I mean, whether you've done a good job or not, but there are people for political reasons do those kinds of things. And it really, really gets you down in a situation where you can't win. Well, just it's a great point because one of the things that drives me crazy um, in the staffing business is uh, I've worked at different places where there's been the finger of blame pointed from either the sales to the recruiters or the recruiters to the sales. And uh, that's one of the things that uh, I set up, uh, Chris and I set up in IT Avalon that just won't be permitted is that we're a team here. You know, we have to work together. If someone's pointing the finger, I will bite that finger off because it does not exist inside of here. <clears throat> I've had many times where, uh, you know, you, you know me, I came from recruiting. So I've got 20 some 26 years of recruiting experience. And I've had salespeople trying to blame me for something that was going on. And I'm like, what the hell did I do? <laughs> I can't control what's going on at the client. Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's just like, that'd be like me pointing at them going, you know, it's your fault because your client didn't show up at the um, interview. You know, we have no control. These are people, you know. So if we all work together as a, in a common thread uh, towards a goal that we can all work together to achieve, there's no stopping us. But once you get that thing where somebody doesn't have your back, isn't on your team, something like that, where there's some kind of political reason why they're trying to point a finger of blame, you're done. So I appreciate well, you bringing good, that a good up. Leader doesn't, a good leader handles those issues. And that was another characteristic of the people that I've, that I've said I've, I've worked with. Big time. You know, if, if someone went to them and said, Rich Brosey did something wrong, what they would say is they would say, go to Rich Brosey and tell Rich Brosey. <laughs> yeah. If they, would, if they said, no, I don't want to go do that, or no, I'm not comfortable doing that, he would say, let me set up a meeting and we'll do that together. Okay. And, you know, the majority of those people would say, oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to set up a meeting. I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't want to confront, you know, Rich. And he would say, well, if you want to clag it, clag, I, I saw Claggett do that. Claggett said, if you don't want to confront them, then you shouldn't be coming to me and telling me that. If you really think that there's something that you know, they're doing wrong, then you should resolve that with them. If you can't resolve it with them, I expect both of you to be in my office and we'll have a conversation. We'll talk about it. Exactly. And I don't think very many people ever showed up in his office together to complain. A few times I've seen that, but not very not. And those were really very not very positive conversations because by the time the people got to his office, somebody was going to quit anyway. And, you know, they were just going to vent their frustration at whoever it was on the other end. But, uh, you know, they never took sides. Now, I've seen, I've seen, I've been in companies where, you know, you would go to my boss and say something about me and my boss would go, well, okay, John. And they would like keep score, right? And then like six months later, I would hear something about, you know, well, somebody came to me and said, you did X, Y, Z, okay? And I would say, well, you know, how come you didn't come to me earlier? Well, why didn't you talk to me earlier? Right. Now, I had this happen with acquisitions where people from the acquisitions would be unhappy about something and they would blame, uh, they blame me because I was representative of the company that purchased them. Well, he's not communicating the good things about the company to us. So I would say, and, you know, and I had a guy who was just like that as a boss who would say, well, people aren't hearing the good news of, you know, the company from you. They're not hearing the good news that we're doing things for them or we're helping them integrate, or we're helping them with the acquisition, or the culture fit, and all the other things that go on. And I would say, well, what are the specifics? If you could share specifics with me, tell me what the specifics are that they're complaining about. Well, I really can't divulge any confidences. And I would say, well, then don't talk to me about it. Right. You know? If you can't tell me who's saying what about me, you know, I mean, it's like politics, right? We're not, this is, you know, we're not in a political environment. You know, which probably that stuff is fair and square, you know, you know, we're in a business, you know, it's a business. I'm not here, you know, for personal reasons. I'm here because, you know, I work here. Can you imagine being in politics? What a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I mean, I don't care what party you're with, even if no. you're not, 
It's it's garbage, man. I, I stopped I stopped watching the news. I stopped going on social media a long time ago because I just it, like there's just yeah. no room for me to be out there watching well, all that crap. I, I don't have I don't have anybody on social media who's posting political things, but um, you know there are people that I know, people that I know personally who are really not bad people that get crazed with that stuff. You know, they keep oh, yeah. posting stuff, no intention to denigrate anybody or any party. But I was reading about Mike Pompeo releasing, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton's tapes because, uh, you know, they contain some salacious information. Well, Hillary Clinton lost the campaign in 2016. You know, I, I felt like writing a note, you know, on social media saying, hey, I found out Eleanor Roosevelt's, you know, underwear or something, you know, <laughs> you know like who cares? <laughs> Or, you know, or somebody who lost the election, you know, or Michael Dukakis' uh, you know, pictures or whatever. I mean, why would you care about Hillary Clinton, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's how many years ago? Four years ago, right? I watched, I, maybe, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but there's a, it's called uh, The Social Dilemma. I watched it on Netflix and it's all about um, these large you know, Google, Facebook, all these large companies and how their algorithms work to keep people on social media. And what it does, what it says in this show is that everybody on social media gets fed all this information in this algorithm to keep them on social media. So they're just feeding you all this information that you already believe in. So you think no matter what side you're on, that that's the way everybody thinks. So if you're on the left, you think the people on the right are crazy. And if you're on the right, you think the people on the left are crazy. And they just keep on feeding all this information in there. And it's just, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a recipe for what's well, going I, on I right people, now. I, my daughter's in-laws, okay? I can't talk to them about politics. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's nuts, dude. In fact, in fact uh, you know, one of them was so upset with me that... that she, you know, this is in the summer. We're sitting outside and, you know, it's a nice day. And they asked me what I thought. And I said, you, do you really want to know? Because if I tell you, they said, oh, no, no, tell us. They were upset. <laughs> That's why I never bring it up. We'll be sitting around a fire pit or something like that. And people be talking. I just keep my mouth shut because it doesn't really matter anyway. I'm like, I'm not going to change anybody's mind. It, 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 you know, it, it is really, it is really a sideshow, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I, I decided a while ago that uh, I'm going to take care of my business. I'm going to take care of my family. I'm going to take care of my local community and everything else. It's outside of my range. I'll just, well, I'll do what I need to do. By its nature, is local. Okay, social yeah. media and TVs made it national. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, 40 years ago, it wouldn't have mattered what happened in, you know, California, maybe. You know, at a local level. Now it's broadcast and, and, you know, promulgated throughout the, so people know what's going on, you know, and uh, like uh, I was reading an article yesterday about some, some, some guy who was a Trump supporter shoved a non-Trump supporter. I'm like, <laughs> you know, we would have never known that 40 years right. ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> if they would have shot each other, we probably wouldn't have known that. Now, everybody knows about it. Yeah, it was it was some town in uh, Oregon or something that I, I never heard of. But they, you know, they were protesting on a street and somebody shoved somebody, so they wrote it and it hit the national news. Well, you know, you know, you know what the story should be: two idiots shoving each other. That's, that's two idiots out protesting whatever they thought they were protesting. Yeah. Two people don't have jobs, <laughs> or if they have jobs, they're really part time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it is. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I think uh, two things about social media. I think one is that it's really it's really made it's really made the point that it's it's becoming more global. I mean, global in a sense that you and I instantly know what's going on pretty much all around the world because it gets printed or videotaped or, you know, somehow promulgated much quicker and faster than through newspapers or through whatever traditional other channels. Right. And the second thing, I think overall it's a force for good because it does provide people access to ideas that they might not have had otherwise. Okay. Think about all the people in India or all the people in third world countries 
that look at the internet and they see they see things that otherwise they never would have seen, and maybe they aspire to them. Uh, it's also a means for education. So all of a sudden, you have all of this information coming at them, which otherwise would have never they, they never would have gotten it. Okay, I mean, I was I was watching something a few months ago about uh, India, and India is still not electrified. A lot of India, and I can't remember how much of India is not electrified, but a good chunk, like more than fifty percent doesn't have electricity. Right. But what they do have is they have generators. So they have a generator, they have an antenna, and they have internet. And these people can come in and they can watch, you know, whatever it is you and I watch, and they have access to their relatives who may be in other parts of the country or other parts of the world for that matter. And all of a sudden, you know, they're part of, I mean, they're part of the world, you know, which otherwise they would not have been. But the negative aspects of social media is that it allows people to spread lies. You know, I mean, doctored videos. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, some of the crazy videos that I've seen, you know, they get, you know, they, they get photoshopped. Oh, yeah. They call it they call it the deep fake. Deep fake. <laughs> you know, and some of them, some of them are humorous and some of them are just downright disgusting. It's like, come on, you know. <laughs> Well, I had a I had a question. We only got a few minutes left here. I wanted to ask you a question. I want to kind of go into a, a, a personal thing. This this whole podcast is really to help people out. So I know when when I met you, um, you were married to your first wife, and um, when I met her, I'll never forget meeting her in your house there in Naperville, and she had a big smile on her face. She was bedridden because uh, she had MS. And uh, I wanted to talk about that just a little bit because I think that'll help some people out. Um, what was her name? I can't remember her name. Lorraine. Lorraine, that's right. Um, what a beautiful lady she was. Um, now, when did you find out? How, how old were you and how old was she when she found out that uh, she well, had we, we were, she, I was two years older than her, so she was in her early 30s and I was in my mid-30s. So I was like 35, she was like 33. Okay. She was first diagnosed. And how old were the how old were the kids? Oh, the kids were, you know, the kids were little kids. I mean, they okay. weren't they were, you know, they were in grade school, okay? Um and you know, I mean, for the first I would say first 4 or 5 years up until about you know, 42, 43, she could function and drive and do pretty much everything that you know, you should be able to do by the time, by the time. So one of the reasons I moved from Dallas to Chicago was because MS is heat sensitive. Oh, okay. And Dallas is a hot place. I mean, at the end of the day, so she could not handle the heat and the heat caused disability to be worse than it would have been in a, in the Midwest climate. And you're from the Midwest, so you know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. Big time. So when I had an opportunity to move to Chicago, she was like, all over me, let's move. Um, but it's a progressive disease. So what happens is that, you know, day one, you don't get like bedridden. It takes, you know, so over, you know, 20 years or so, she wound up losing more control. She wound up getting more debilitated. She wound up using the wheelchair. Uh, then she got to a point where she couldn't even at the end control the wheelchair. She didn't have the strength in her arms, but she always had cognition. There was never any cognition issues. Uh, she could always talk. Uh, and she was one of these rare people that believed in a cure. So on day one, she said, when are we going to have the cure? The last day, she said, I'm waiting for the cure. And uh, it made life with her a lot easier than it would have been otherwise because she was not a complainer. She accepted a situation and made the best of it and allowed me to continue with my business career without a whole lot of disruption. Uh, I had to do some things where I had some people that I had to hire from a housekeeping standpoint and, and taking care of her standpoint, but overall, and you know that because you saw me, I mean, there were a few instances where, you know, there were some issues, but overall, I mean, it was, it was really just not a problem. Uh, and, 
you know, MS is not a disease that will kill you. MS will cause side effects that will kill you. And it could be uh, symptoms like COPD. She didn't have COPD, but it, it weakens your overall system. So when your lungs are not strong, you're not breathing, it's like having COPD because you can't get enough oxygen. Right. Uh, you know, issues like uh, inability to walk, or being disabled, or being uh, wheelchair bound. So gradually, every person that has MS, and, it, and, and it's, it's, it's really, it's kind of like a cancer, you know, every person has an individual course of the disease. So it's not like everybody gets the same kind of a course. Uh, in her case, uh, she would gradually, slowly, over time, get debilitated. There are people that have spikes, you know, they have debilitation, they stay in bed, they get well. Uh, but each spike, they get worse, okay? Then there are people that will have it uh, and and never never change the course. You know, there are people that will pass away and they'll do an autopsy and find out that person had MS and have lesions of MS in the brain and that person never knew they had MS. So it's one of those crazy diseases where now they have much better drugs now than they had before. Right. When she was first diagnosed, all I had is uh, steroids, which is just, it's essentially a disease where your white blood cells attack your body. Your white blood cells, instead of recognizing that your body is not the enemy, attack, attack your, your, uh, your body. So it attacks your brain. And sclerosis is it causes little scars in the neurons. It eats away the fatty substance called myelin, and it causes a kind of a scar. So, in other words, if the, the, your, your nerves are sheathed in that in that in that fatty substance called myelin, it strips away the myelin and causes the nerves to misfire, which is why the, the which is why the people get debilitated, which is why they get more more and more unable to control their feet, control their you know their. Uh, I mean, some of the I mean, it, it's, it's a crazy disease. There's symptoms. We've seen people who are blind as a result of that. Uh, we've seen people that have had, uh, they, could not use, they could not use their hands, but would be perfectly okay otherwise. So one, one, of, one, of my, one of my questions behind it is, you know, for people who are dealing with family members who have these kind of either prognosis or disease or something like that, there had to be times where you were like, damn it. You know, it's just like you got to sit there and go, why, why her, why me, why the kids, why do we have, how, how do you get through those, those points? Because it, I know for me, I would go, God, why is this happening? You know, life is so good right now. Why is this happening to me? But John, it's like anything else, you wind up dealing with it. Okay. Right. You know, like I said, it's not a precipice kind of a thing. It's not like you're well, and all of a sudden you're not, it's like you're well, and then you're gradually not well. So it's almost like you kind of get used to this, right? So when I bought the house here in Illinois, I knew that she was still able to walk with a walker and still able to get around. But I knew that at some point she was going to be able to do that. So I had to buy a house on one floor, which in Illinois, at least in this area, is very hard to do. Most people yeah, build up. Yeah. So we had to find a ranch and we had to find a ranch where... You know, there was easy access from a wheelchair standpoint. So, for, you know, for the first two and a half, three years, we lived in this house. She never had to use a wheelchair. Then she started using a wheelchair every now and then. Then all of a sudden it became, you know, so it, you kind of gradually ease into that. Okay. And then you build up your support structure. And, uh, you know, and again, business taught me how to organize things. So I was able to get a, you know, live-in person for her, for a companion. I had a lady who lived with us for 16 years, okay, uh, before she passed away. So, you know, that lady was, you know, she'd come in the house. She knew what to do, you know, from the, from the day she walked in to the time she walked out, you know. And uh, she would basically take care of the household. I mean, I'd pay the bills, and they would take care of everything else, the cooking, the shopping, the, you know, everything else was pretty much taken care of. Now, I paid, I paid for that. But it was a lot easier than, you know, quitting work. Okay. So I was very fortunate that the financial circumstances allowed me to do that. But you, you, you know, you solve it gradually. Uh, 
you know, and it's almost like you don't, you wind up not thinking about it. I and mean, you didn't see that. I mean, you saw me in action when this was going on. I mean, it wasn't like it was controlling my life. No, and that's, that's why I kind of wanted to ask about it and talk about it because if I wouldn't have met Lorraine, if I wouldn't have known you as well as I did, you would never know something like that was going on because you, Lorraine, everybody, and it, maybe it was because of her strength that you're talking about well, it. That John, it was, I make a point here. I, I, know you, I know you well enough to know that you have personal resilience. I know that you're flexible. I know that you're an intelligent guy. And I, I know that you're a good person. You think good thoughts. Okay. Yep. You love somebody. That person winds up getting ill. You're going to figure out how to take care of them. Okay. Exactly. And I mean, it's almost, it's almost that simple. Okay. Uh, I was never one that sat around and said, you know, woe unto me because it's, it's a misfortune. I was, I was always thankful that I had, you know, a good job. I had good people to work with. You know, one of the things that made my career so, so interesting is I worked with some really neat people, both on, on the employment, both on the employee side and, and the management side. And I have some very, and you know, I have a lot of friends who are former employees of, you know, who've worked for me or worked with me. And I was always a work with kind of a person. So some of the life lessons that, you know, I learned in business, I applied to this situation. And, you know, I was fulfilled at work. You know, I got my job done. I got paid well. I made some money. Um, I went to some interesting places. Unfortunately, she couldn't go with me to some of these places. But, you know, I mean, I, I basically lived, I, I lived, I lived a very, very good life. And at the same time, she did too. Right. You know, so I didn't let circumstances just kind of sort of get me to a point where I was saying, whoa, unto me. I mean, every once in a while you're saying this sucks. <laughs> well, you, you've got to, it's, it's a, it's a human thought and it's, it's just like, it's, it's like human nature, you know, it's we, human nature. Yeah. You know, there was some frustration here and there, you know, and, uh, and I was thinking, how long is this going to go on? You know, and then, uh, and then when she passed away, I was like, you know, what do I do next? Because it was like your life's empty, right? I mean, because yeah. you've set up, you've set up everything. You, you've got this machine built that is functioning, you know, as well as it can because it's right. grief, right? You, you fix all the problems. You've got these people who you've engaged with. You know, you've got. I had, you know, doctors, nurses. Uh, uh, you know, people that provided, uh, you know, uh, massage therapy, therapists. I mean, I had people, you know, I had all these people engaged. All of a sudden it was like, it was, that was like the precipice, right? I got to a point like, boom. <laughs> so I remember the first couple of weeks felt really weird because I, I didn't have to have somebody here, you know, to take care of her. Uh, you know, fortunately I have, I have a good family, a good supportive family and, you know, that probably was even harder to get through at first than maybe some of the other things that happened at the front end. But, uh, but thank you for asking. Seriously, I think the way you deal with it is like you would deal with anything else. You know, you apply all the life lessons you've learned and uh, you're a committed guy. You would make sure it worked. You know? Yeah. Well, I'm just, uh, I, I'm, uh, I consider myself lucky that I get a chance to meet Lorraine. And uh, it was, uh, I'll never forget the big smile on her face. And she was so nice to me. Well, she was always, she was, she was happy to see people. Okay. Yeah. That's one of the things about her that was different, maybe than some of the other people I've seen who have a chronic illness, you know, they don't want to see anybody. They just don't want to be left alone. Okay. Yeah. And they want to be lost in their environment. She was very welcoming, very open. I could bring anybody over anytime at any time of day and night, you know, have them stay over and she'd be like, great. <laughs> well, now you, you're remarried. Um, I see that um, you got grandbabies. I've got four grandkids. Yes. And uh, how old are the grandkids? Well, I have, my son has two, two boys, 19 and, and, uh, and 17. So I've got two big guys. Uh, and then my daughter just had a uh, uh, baby. And it's an interesting story about her. She were, they were having difficulties. So they went through surrogacy. Yeah. As soon as they paid the money for surrogacy and, you know, surrogacy is big bucks. 
Right. As soon as they went to a surrogacy, she got pregnant. Pregnant. <laughs> you, knew, you knew the answer. Well, no, same thing. So she, she wound up having a baby boy. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, a, a month later, the surrogate had a baby girl. <laughs> so, so they almost got twins. She has twins. She's got two, <laughs> two little kids now. She's calling me today because she's having some issues at work trying to, you know, manage the kids and work and, and she works virtually, but I'm just saying at the same time, you know, she's like, I don't know if I can handle this. And I'm saying, well, you know, go figure it out, you know? Yeah, exactly. Work with your manager, you know, call her up again. You know, I was thinking about Claggett and I was like, Claggett, just go in there and talk to them again. <laughs> yeah. Get it figured out. And John, I couldn't say to him, well, uh, what if they don't talk to me? I had to say, yes, sir, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show up there in the morning, you know? <laughs> Uh, so I, it was all good, but thank you for asking about Lorraine. And I think that, uh, you know, if there is any kind of a lesson there is that, uh, you gotta be positive, you know, you gotta have a positive outlook. And I knew at some point in time and, you know, and then that was always kind of sort of annoying, you know, knowledge I had, I knew that she was going to pass on and I knew that it was going to be within, you know, who knows, right. She got to live for another 20 years. But, but it was, it was inevitable. And, uh, and I think at the end she was kind of relieved and, you know, I, it was a very, it was a very non event event. It wasn't like, you know, she was in pain or she was in a hospital or she was unconscious. She went to, she went to sleep, you know, next morning didn't wake up and I didn't hear anything. You know, I slept in the same room, you know, I didn't hear anything, you know, and I assumed everything, I mean, and, she looked peaceful. I thought she was awake. In, fa in fact, I think when I woke up, it took me a while to figure out that, you know, she was gone. I was like, hey, you know, <laughs> wake up. <laughs> but anyway, no, but thanks for asking. Yeah, know? well, it's uh, it's something that I think can help a lot of people out because uh, we're, we're all going to go through those kind of situations. Not maybe the same situation, right. but we're all there's only a few promises in this world and that that's things are going to change always. And John, it's a situation you can't do anything about, you know, yeah. you know, and, and the problem with people that I've seen is people get involved in situations they can't do anything about and they spend time worrying and ruining, you know, their health in some cases, uh, you know, I mean, really, really getting themselves into a position where they become unhealthy because they're so worried about some other person being not, not healthy. Uh, they wind up making mistakes from an economic standpoint, you know, quit their job to take care of a parent or something without thinking through what that means. Can they afford to do that? Is that something they can manage um, or just, you know, really go into a depression, which also, I guess, is a health issue, a major health issue. Yeah, big time. Mostly now, mostly now in COVID. I mean, there's so many people who are dealing with depression, alcoholism, drugs, you know, because they're they're in a situation that you can't control. None of us can control yeah, this. You can't. You, you can't. And, you know, it's almost it's almost silly to say do the best you can, which is really what you might say about a lot of other things. But, you know, with COVID, you got to manage that the best you can and you got to follow the guidelines. Um, you know, I go to a store, you know, I wear a mask. Um, I go outside, you know, I don't, you know, go into, a, you know, I'm. I mean, all the bars are closed anyway, right? So I don't go, I, we, we don't go out to eat. You know, we haven't been out to eat since probably sometime in March, okay, early March, when this whole thing kind of sort of hit. Right. Because uh, prior to that, you know, in February, we were, we were still doing, you know, get togethers and parties. I remember on February 28th, we had a going away party for somebody, you know? And, you know, we knew about COVID back then, but it wasn't like COVID was, you know, a serious thing. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, the Illinois governor, like him or not, has done a pretty good job of managing, you know, the opening and shutting and closing and all of that. So, you know, if you're, if you're in a bar business, I mean, you're probably not doing too well. Uh, I don't care who you are. You're probably not doing too well. If you're in a restaurant business, you're probably not doing too well. That section of the economy is really going to take a long time to recover. But I think, uh, you know, if you own Amazon stock, you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> right.
So I think uh, that's that's about all we got for time here. Um, John, it was a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate you taking the time. You're looking great. Uh, you too. You're looking fit and happy and young and all of that good stuff. I got to stay young, man. I got a two-year-old at home, bro. <laughs> well, that that that's here's a funny thing. When Johnny graduates high school, I'll be 64 years old. So I gotta I gotta stay as young as I can. You're gonna be a young man when he graduates high school. 64, John. It's, it. You know, listen, when I was 60, I felt like I was 40. You know, I feel like I'm 40 today. That's right. <laughs> That's why I love you, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Rich, All right. Rich. Enjoyed it. Glad to do it. You're the best, and man. Best of luck to you and Carissa. And congratulations. Sounds okay. good. Get, yeah, reach out to Dave Androsco. He'd love to hear from I you. Will. I will. Call, I will call Dave and, and talk to him about his dad. Okay. All right. Sounds All good, right. my friend. I'll talk Thanks, to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. <laughs>